0: The first one is from um, Genesis 3, um, verses 1 to 5, and it's on page 5 of the Bible. The Fall. Now, the snake was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree in the garden? The woman said to the snake, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch
1: it or you will die. You'll certainly not die, the snake said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And the second passage is Matthew 3, verse 13 to Matthew 4, verse 11, which is on page 967. The baptism of Jesus. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfil all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptised, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him.
0: Great. Good morning, everyone. It's really good to be involved in this uh, service of baptism. It's a privilege to be involved. To be involved. And um, in a sense, what you've heard and seen this morning is is probably enough, Um, but I know you'd be disappointed if I didn't speak for a couple of hours, so um, let's just carry on, shall we? Um, One of the things that stood out for me, and I'm sure it stood out for more than just me, was um, how each of those who were being baptised talked about, in some way or another, being all in for Christ. Um, They may have used slightly different words, but they all expressed this thought about being fully committed to Jesus. Now, baptism is one way of expressing that. It's an important way of expressing that. And in this passage that we're looking at this morning, um, we see that as a result of Jesus' full commitment to follow God, expressed through his baptism, that immediately following that, he is led into the wilderness to be tested. By the devil. Now, are we really talking about the devil in this uh, modern, enlightened age? Isn't that just, you know, a bit superstitious still to be talking about the devil? Two, two children were discussing the existence of the devil, and uh, one of them was adamant that there's no such thing as a devil. And the, the other one said, well, you know, look at your Bible. You know, go through the pages of the Bible, it's there, you'll see the devil is mentioned in the Bible. And the other one said, no, no, you're misunderstanding that. It's like Father Christmas, the devil is your dad. (laughs) Um, And a lot of people are open to the idea of God, but to them, kind of belief in the devil is on the same level as belief in Santa Claus or something like that. But for me, that raises questions. As one poet put it very briefly, the devil has been voted out, the devil's dead and gone. But some of us would like to know who carries his business on. So some people take another view. William Blatty, who wrote and produced the film The Exorcist, said, As far as God goes, I'm a non believer. But when it comes to the devil, well, that's something else, because he advertises. He does lots of commercials. Of all of the inhabitants of the earth, human beings are the only species that consistently perform destructive acts without any benefit to themselves. Why is that? Well, I think the only worldview that's consistent with what we know about the environment we live in and ourselves, this wonderful planet that we inhabit with its amazing complexity and beauty, its awe-inspiring nature, a wonderful environment on the one hand, and yet, on the other hand, um, a species that selfishly ravages this environment and abuses its fellow species. The only worldview that makes sense of those two things for me is a worldview that embraces the existence both of good and evil, God and the devil. But unfortunately, the, the word devil carries all sorts of baggage with it, doesn't it? You know, red tights and horns and the tail, which makes him, frankly, totally incredible. Um, it's no surprise that no one believes in a being like that. But if we think of a, a malevolent, and evil spiritual being who stands against all that is good, all that is pure, who stands against God and seeks to spoil everything that God has done, well, that makes sense of the world to me. And that is the devil that the Bible speaks about. And he makes an entrance at two of the most significant points in human history. So entrance number one, we find him in the person of the snake. Humankind is enjoying unbroken relationship with God and the snake approaches the woman and says, did God really say? You mustn't eat from any tree in the garden. And the woman explains, you know, all of these trees are okay but this particular one is not okay. And then the snake says to her, well, you won't die. On the contrary, you'll be like God. That's entrance number one. Entrance number two, another significant point in human history, is the devil approaching Jesus immediately after his baptism and tempting him. If you are the Son of God, do this. If you are the Son of God, do that. Worship me, and you'll get all this. So two entrances. Not in the dark, to the sound of creaking doors and screeching violins. It's all out in the open, possibly out in the sunshine. But it's subtle. And it's the devil's subtlety that makes him so dangerous. Sean said in her um, testimony, that her journey of faith has not always stayed on the right track. And we're in this middle of a series called Staying on Track. And we've called this particular um, talk this morning, When the Devil Whispers, because the devil doesn't derail us by shouting at us and making a great song and dance of things, but through subtle doubts, through whispered insinuations, spoken, softly spoken suggestions. So let's look at the nature of that whisper, how we recognize it, and how we can deal with it. The last book of the Bible, Genesis, in that book, John writes that the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient snake called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. And for our purposes this morning, that is a simple summary of a strategy that the devil uses to derail us is to subtly lead us astray. It's to subtly get us off track. How does he do that? Well, the answer's in a, in both of our readings. He doesn't make this all-out assault on Eve in the garden. Instead, he sidles up to her and has a quiet word, raising a doubt. Did God really say? He doesn't make an all-out assault on Jesus in the wilderness. Again, he sidles up to him, has a quiet word, raising a doubt. Are you really the son of God? Prove it. And in both cases, he suggests an alternative way, an alternative track, at the end of which are better things. To Eve, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil and to Jesus all this I will give you and how do things turn out well we know that in the first case in Genesis at stake was humanity's relationship with God but the outcome at that point was defeat and death coming off the rails and again in Matthew humanity's relationship with God is at stake but this time the outcome is victory and it's life, staying on track. And I want to suggest to you that the devil's strategies today are no different to what they were then. Firstly, did God really say? Did God really say that all your sins are forgiven? All of them. Did God really say that? Did God really prohibit that behavior? Isn't there another way of reading those verses in the Bible? Aren't you taking that a bit a bit too literally? Isn't that a bit old fashioned now that bit over there? Does God really expect that of you? Isn't that a bit extreme isn't getting baptized a bit over the top? Did God really say? He whispers. And then, secondly, if you are a son of God or if you are a daughter of God, then prove it. Shouldn't you be experiencing overwhelming joy and peace that transcends all understanding? Shouldn't you have conquered that bad habit? Shouldn't all your prayers be being answered? Shouldn't you be hearing directly from God? Shouldn't you be filled with a deep love for others? Shouldn't you be out there serving the poor instead of serving yourself? Are you sure you're a son of God? Are you sure you're a daughter of God? And all of these little doubts, if they are heeded, silently, stealthily, imperceptibly, erode our faith in God and our faith in God's word. As C.S. Lewis put it in the screw tape letters, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, which is why, coincidentally, um, or not coincidentally, actually, which is why in the Gospels Jesus talks about us turning away from sin and turning towards God, and it's why the New Testament talks about milestones like baptism. So how do we deal with the devil's whispers? How do we make sure our faith isn't eroded by doubt? How do we stay on track? Well, I want to leave you with some simple thoughts from Matthew 4 uh, about a book, a door, and a passport. So, first of all, a book. Know what God has said. Ian Crossley said last week that facts trump feelings, And Jesus' response to the devil in Matthew 4 is unmistakable. It is written. It is written. It is written. You can't know what is false unless you know what is true. So we need to know what is true. We need to know what God has said. We need to know his word, the Bible, this book, this wonderful book, God's inspired word for us. In a fantastic passage in Ephesians 6, um, Paul writes, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The Bible is essential if we're going to stay on track. And Jesus clearly knew his Old Testament. He knew his Old Testament well enough to quote scriptures to the devil as the devil was testing him. And interestingly, all of his quotes are from the book of Deuteronomy which suggests to me that that, that, was kind of, that was quite fresh to him, that he'd been spending time reading those words and reflecting on them and meditating on them so that he had something fresh when the devil, when the devil came to, to test him. So know what God has said, know this book. Secondly, show the devil the door. Actually, I think this might be a politician, but that's just, that's just accidental. You get the point, hopefully. You can't stop the devil knocking on the door. You can't stop the devil ringing your doorbell. But you don't have to open the door and engage in conversation with him. You you can't stop the devil whispering. But you can tell him where to go when you hear that whisper. Eve knew what God had said. She told the snake what God had said. But then the conversation carried on. Whereas Jesus didn't enter into a dialogue. Although the account in Matthew 4 is presented as a single event, there are, four, there are three, uh, three separate scenes, so probably three significant pauses between each of those scenes. And on the third occasion, Jesus forcefully tells the devil, away from me. He shows the devil the door in James 4.7, which you may have read this morning before you read James 4.8. Um, it says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So we need to show the devil the door. And then thirdly, know who you are. Just as your passport is a reliable uh, proof of your identity, So the Bible is a reliable proof of your spiritual identity. And I find it significant that Jesus, testing by the devil, comes on the back of these words at the end of Matthew 3, when God says to him, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Jesus knew he was God's son. Jesus knew he was in a place of great privilege. Jesus knew he was loved unconditionally. He knew he brought pleasure to his heavenly Father. He knew who he was. And if we know that we are God's children, in a place of great privilege, forgiven and raised with Christ, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, and if we know, in Holly's words, that this truly amazing all-powerful God out there loves us unconditionally, not because of what we've done or how we look or our abilities, but just because of his amazing grace. And if we know that we bring God pleasure, not because we're better than other people, but because we are made in God's image and remade by the Spirit of God. If we know who we are like Christ knew who he was, then when those whispers come, we will be able to resist them from a place of security. Heidi said um, at the start of her testimony that she used to think you had to have a perfect relationship with God before you could be baptized. But we don't. We just need to know who we are. We have everything we need and therefore nothing Therefore, we need nothing that the devil might, has, might have to offer us. And from that place of security, we can resist him. So let me just draw these threads together. The devil wants to derail us. <clears throat> One of his strategies, a key strategy, is through the quiet insinuation of doubts about who we are and about what God has done for us. And in Matthew 4 we see through Jesus' example three ways in which we can resist him, symbolized by the door, the book, and the passport. First of all, we need to know what God has said, contained in his word, the Bible, the book of books. Secondly, we need to show the devil the door, stating plainly what God has said and not entering into a dialogue with him. And thirdly, we must know who we are, the privileged sons and daughters of God, unconditionally loved and bringing God's pleasure. Like a passport, the Bible is an accurate statement of our identity. And if we do these things, we will stay on track. Not because it's about us, but because in the words of the song we're going to close with in a moment. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Saviour and my God. We have our part to play, to stay on track, to resist the devil. But ultimately, our security doesn't rest on our own ability to do what we need to do. Ultimately, it rests on God. As we've sung already this morning, Christ is our cornerstone. We put our trust in him. He is our firm foundation. That's where our confidence is. But from that place of confidence, we do what we need to do to stay on track with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace to us. Thank you for giving us in your word some examples of how we can resist the enemy. I pray, Lord, that you will sow seeds in our hearts this morning, water those seeds so that we can stay on track for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.